Greg, are, are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Uh, I uh, more of a Hobbit fan. I read The Hobbit. I didn't read <gasps> Lord of the Rings because it was so blooming long. Yeah, fair enough. This is a great news for me, though, because what I'm about to tell you is going to sound like one of Gollum's riddles Okay. from from The Hobbit. So this is very appropriate. I was wondering, uh, are we doing the science history of The Hobbit? Well, there are rings involved, rings of great power. And I promise this episode is much more science than fiction. But Stephen Hawking has called the thing that we're going to talk about stranger than anything dreamed up by science fiction. Okay. Rings, Stephen Hawking. I got one more hint yeah. to get you in. How do you capture an image of something that is fundamentally invisible? Okay. That's my that's my golem riddle for I you. I know what we're talking about. What is it? Uh, I think you're talking about the amazing image of the black hole captured a couple of years ago because that was an awesome ring and that was Stephen Hawking's bag. Black holes, baby. Exactly. You you hit the nail or the ring rather right on the head out <laughs> because today we are going to be discussing the problematic entity that made einstein doubt his own theory of gravity Uh-oh. they're the quandary at the center of our galaxy and most others they're the source of so many problems in physics but also maybe the key to finding out why the universe exists in the first place nice so we're going to sort through what's fact and what's fiction when it comes to black holes and, as promised, how generations of scientists worked to make the invisible visible. But first, you're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. Hello, this is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas and people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Maren Hunsberger. And for this episode, I get to be the storyteller, which means that Greg is in for a wild ride. So strap in. Whenever I talk about black holes, I always get the Doctor Who theme song stuck in my head. I think they should have asked us to do it, really, Greg. Done. That's how you get around copyright, folks. So black holes are pretty heady physics stuff, Greg. And this is more your bag than mine, because as we know, I'm a microbiologist. Love a bit of physics, me, and a bit of astronomy. And I, I think we often think of them as sort of just this other fact of space, you know, like... When I think about space, even as a non-physics-y person, I think like, yeah, planets, stars, black holes. Mm-hmm. These all exist for sure, right? Yeah. Well, this episode really challenged my perception of just how sure we can ever really actually be. What's well, so you're suggesting they were theoretical entities? I am indeed. And I'm also asking, when did they become not just theory? When did they become real for us? Uh, if they are, in fact, real. But we have to start, like many good things do, with Isaac Newton. Oh, him with the wonderful hair and the apples. And the apples. He's everywhere. He's a busy guy because where else have we seen him in this podcast, Greg? Um, the maths episode, the calculus episode. Oh, yeah. The language of the universe. Mm. I really, I'm a big fan of that episode. It taught me a lot. And with Newton, we start to see the beginning of this pattern where someone has an idea And then they need to invent a tool to be able to observe whether their idea is actually happening. So for instance, Isaac has all of these interesting ideas about the way objects move through space and time, the way light behaves in our world. And he invents the first reflecting telescope. Now, the telescopes used before this were relatively rudimentary, you know, like the kind used by Galileo when he was figuring out that the sun is at the center of our solar system, not the Earth. Those were kind of like a magnifying glass lens on the end of a tube. Mm. They were just magnifying whatever you had it pointed towards. But Newton's telescope contains a mirror and it collects and focuses 
the light that's bouncing off an object that you're trying to see and directs it into your eye. And it creates a much sharper and more detailed image of something very far away. It's a very clever design. He's a really clever guy because he also, as we've mentioned, is the guy who invents a mathematical language that allows us to describe all the crazy cool stuff that he's observing, especially when it comes to light, because the behavior of light is like really complicated, right? So Newton's observing the world around him. He's using this awesome new telescope that he's invented to try and figure out how light is behaving in reference to other things on Earth, in reference to objects. And he also comes up with a pretty important theory involving the apples, which is... Gravité. Gravité. Now, according to Newton's theory of gravity, it's a force that applies to everything, right? The apple falls from the tree towards the Earth because of gravity. Earth's motion around the sun because of gravity. And at this point in history, Newton doesn't really know why or how gravity works. Like, he's observed it. He can describe it mathematically when he plugs in all the variables, but it's still this, like, mm. mystical force that attracts two objects together, and he doesn't understand how. It's one mass multiplied by the other mass divided by the distance between them squared times the gravitational constant. Nerd. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, my guy. Yeah, you had that right at the top of your brain, and I am very impressed. So it, it does take someone else coming along a bit later to get us a little closer to our modern understanding of gravity and how it behaves in our wider universe. And I'll give you a hint about who that is, and you can have a guess. It's someone who maybe was a little more preoccupied with time. Doctor Who. Oh, no. no oh, man, that is such a good answer. I didn't even think of that. Someone, uh, someone with crazy white hair. And a mustache. Mr. Einstein. Yes, exactly. An excellent mustache on that man, I must say. And to help us understand where Einstein comes into the mix of making the invisible visible, I got the chance to talk to Avi Loeb, Greg, and he's wow. a professor at Harvard University. Yes, yeah, you recognize him. He's an yeah. amazing, amazing name in this field. He studies and teaches astrophysics. He's also the founder of the Black Hole initiative. Sure. And as if that didn't make him cool enough already, he's also published two books on the search for extraterrestrial life. Yeah, like that's uh, that's an amazing person to speak to for this podcast. Yeah, man, this podcast is affording me some of the best conversations of my freaking life. And here is what Avi had to say about Einstein's remix of Newton's theory of gravity. Remix. Wait, wait, can you do that again? But go, it's the remix. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Einstein came to the realization that, well, maybe gravity is not a force, it's actually a property of space and time, that in fact, gravity is curvature of space and time. Space is not flat the way Newton thought. The curved space and time tell objects how to move. So uh, the way I like to picture this, Greg, is like kind of interactive. So it, it, picture like you and I are trying to fold a sheet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The sheet that we're holding is space and time woven together. You're yep. holding one end, I'm holding the other. Yep. Somebody puts a bowling ball on our sheet. What's mm -hmm. going to happen to it? Uh, it causes the whole sheet to kind of dip down under the weight of the bowling ball. Exactly. Okay, so if someone adds a ping pong ball then to our piece of fabric, what happens to the ping pong ball? Well, it would, it would probably roll into the dip created by the bowling ball. Exactly, and it's not because of something to do with the bowling ball, it's because of the way the bowling ball has altered our sheet. Yes, so that's the idea of a big heavy mass, like a big planet, warping space-time, creating a gravity well, and then another object, like a smaller planet, 
not necessarily being pulled towards that object, but instead falling into the gravity well created by the larger mass. Yes. Now, in reality, space-time is not a flat sheet. It's more three-dimensional, right? It's all around us. So space and time are being bent and curved in all directions around massive objects. So, for example, the sun curves space and time around it, and the planets follow that curved space as if they were trying to move on a straight line, but in fact, they are moving in a circle around the sun as a result of the curvature of space and time. And, and that was the realization of Einstein. And, and, and his, uh, he formulated the equations that uh, allow us to calculate how space and time are, are curved under the influence of, of massive objects. And he uh, predicted various things. It's a clever change of like perspective, isn't it? From the force between two objects to actually being the warping of space and time. Uh, so what did Einstein predict then? Well, to get into these predictions, we have to go back to December 1915 in a German artillery camp on the eastern front of World War I because there's a lieutenant there named Karl Schwarzschild, who in addition to currently being a soldier, is also the director of the Astrophysical Observatory in Potsdam, Germany. He's a very accomplished theorist and mathematician, and on this one cold and unforgiving winter night during wartime, he opens a letter, and it's a detailed report from his colleague, Albert Einstein. And what he's about to read is pretty revolutionary because it's Einstein's new theory of gravity. Wow. That's a pretty cool pen pal to have, isn't it? I mean, what a letter to get. It's a pretty special letter. <laughs> special, do you get it? Oh, Greg? that's a <laughs> special relativity joke, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at this point, Einstein has already formulated his theory of special relativity, which is like a little gnarly if you think about it too long, but basically just has to do with describing the way that things move in relation to each other in time. We're not going to get into it too much. Oh, you, okay, you stopped me. <laughs> But there's like, there's there's time dilation, there's length contraction, there's all sorts of neat stuff. And you get to it by thinking about light bouncing around on a train. Oh, just hold me back. Dude, we clearly have to do another episode entirely about the theory of relativity. And you should absolutely write it because okay. I think... I th I think we need to dive into that a little bit more. But essentially, special relativity is the way that objects behave in space and time, but without gravity factored in. And that's a problem, right, Greg? Because... We kind of live in a world with a lot of gravity. Yeah. And so we come back to the letter. The letter that Schwarzschild opens is full of formulas, what Einstein is calling his field equations. They're um, abbreviated EFE, or I like to call them EFE, Einstein's field equations. They take his relativity equations that deal with the behavior of objects in space and time, and they factor in the effect of gravity. But Einstein has gotten kind of stuck because he doesn't think that they can be solved exactly. He only has approximations. He thinks that's as far as he can go, but he just wants to check with Schwarzschild. And Schwarzschild cracks the code immediately. What? He responds to Einstein in a matter of days with the first known exact solutions to Einstein's field equations. And this is what Schwarzschild says in his letter back to Einstein. As you see, the war treated me kindly enough, in spite of the heavy gunfire, to allow me to get away from it all and take this walk in the land of your ideas. 
Ooh, what a phrase. But also, Schwarzschild, what a brain. I mean, also to be doing that, you know, on the front line. Yeah, literally, in spite of heavy gunfire. That's epic. It's totally incredible. I mean, he has now integrated the effect of gravity into Einstein's already revolutionary theory of relativity. He's found a mathematical solution that completely describes how space-time warps around a spherical object like a planet or a star. Does that now become general relativity rather than special relativity? You got it, my guy. That's where we get the two relativities. Special is gravityless. General is plus gravity. So does that actually mean that Einstein came up with special and Schwarzschild was like the first proof of general? I think Einstein still definitely should get most of the credit. I mean, he did most of the work. It was just that Schwarzschild's exact solutions bring us to this new level. And actually, I'm, I'm going to have you take a look at this equation, Greg. Okay. Just to, you know, pull back the curtain. We've got a little Google Doc that we paste things into for each other as we're telling each other stories. It's on page five. Page five, I'm told. Hang on. Well, that's an equation. Yeah, man. I don't even know what most of those letters are. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, there's a bunch of Greek letters. Calciprise. There's two um, equal signs. Why are there two equal signs? You're right. There are two equal signs because it means that it's not just the first bit and the second bit are equal. It's also the third bit, which means the first bit and the third bit are also equal. But oh there's uh, there's some little d's which might mean uh, we're getting into calculus area, which uh, is what meh. your episode was on. Yes, that is true. Me and calculus had a reconciliation during that episode. But there's something kind of weird about Schwarzschild's solutions, Greg. Uh, don't ask me because I can't actually read this pretty complicated <laughs> equation just yet. Yeah, I know. Me neither. But apparently, if you take these equations to their extreme, they predict the existence of super dense astrophysical bodies, something more dense than anyone had ever thought possible, something where if you plug in all of the appropriate variables, the equation tells you that at a certain point, every single particle in the universe, even light, would be trapped by that object and could never escape. So hang on, hang on. You're now also telling me that Schwarzschild's equation leads to the idea of black holes. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And at this point, we don't even call them black holes. We call them Schwarzschild singularities. Ah, and he did all of that in how long did it take after he got the letter? Whilst know, on the front line? A couple days. A couple days while fighting what? World War One. <laughs> so that theoretical boundary, Greg, that Schwarzschild predicts, past which nothing could escape, not even light. That is something called the event horizon. And one of the ways that I like to kind of envision it for myself, it's not strictly correct, but it helps intuitively to think about it, is that a black hole is basically bending space-time around it, and it's actually moving space-time such that the speed where it's going towards the black hole, if it stays outside the event horizon, it might orbit several times, but it still has the possibility to escape. But the stuff that goes into a black hole is lost to us forever. And that includes light. That was Sarah Markoff. She's a professor of theoretical high energy astrophysics at the University of Amsterdam. And what that means is that I'm studying um, extreme processes that happen in outer space. And mostly I'm interested in stuff that happens around black holes. Uh, I should just say that um, when you talk about Event Horizon, you're not talking about the uh, 1997 sci-fi film with Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill. I did not even know that existed, but no, I am not talking about that film, Greg. 
No. You're talking about the thing that's fascinated people for ages. The limit past which nothing can return. The point of no return. I always get the Phantom of the Opera song stuck in my <laughs> stuck in my head when we talk about the event horizon. But at this point in time, because black holes aren't called black holes, they're called Schwarzschild singularities, the event horizon is not called the event horizon. It's called the Schwarzschild radius. Wow, it was all named after that dude. And right I so. know. I know. I'm really sad that he's disappeared from our, our lexicon describing these astrophysical objects. But also, the cool thing about the Schwarzschild radius is that not only does it mean that anything that passes it can never escape from the black hole, it also means that if you squish an object past its Schwarzschild radius, it will become a black hole. And that's anything, Greg. So if you took the Earth and you squished it past its Schwarzschild radius, like pressed on it and pressed on it and pressed on it, so it was becoming more and more and more and more dense. If you squished the Earth into the size of a peanut, it would become a black hole. No way. That's a great fact, huh? I wonder how big the uh, Marin or Greg Schwarzschild radius is. If the oh Earth my God. is a, If the Earth is a peanut, I guess we're going to be like... We'd be like the size of a proton, right? I, mean, I was going to say grain of sand, but it's way, 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 way smaller <laughs> than that. The takeaway I'm getting from this is that with enough effort and determination, we too can become black holes. <laughs> if you put under enough pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell that to my deadlines. <laughs> so, unfortunately, even though Schwarzschild has contributed so much to this field in such a short period of time, he actually dies only about a year after he solves Einstein's equations. And poor Einstein is left all on his lonesome with these beautifully solved equations, but that are telling him something that was considered really outlandish at the time. Mm. Nobody believed it. You know, they thought, well, this is just a weird, you know, mathematical prediction. Even Einstein didn't believe that these these objects were going to exist. Yeah, because they're so bonkers to imagine, yeah? The notion of something that can become so dense that light can't escape it. And it comes out of the maths, but then lots of things kind of come out of the maths that you can't see or touch or feel. And that's why it takes such a long time to, you know, discuss, argue, uh, <laughs> whether these things are, you know, are actually true in reality or not. Einstein actually publishes a paper in 1939 arguing that Schwarzschild singularities cannot physically exist. He's arguing against himself that like, <laughs> theoretically, yes, it works. Reality, no way. Yeah, because it's so counterintuitive with what you can see, feel, touch, smell. I wonder what a black hole smells like. Anyway, carry on. This is a great question. I've heard that outer space smells like seared steak. Yes. And and raspberries, isn't it? Isn't there something about space that smells of raspberries? I did not know that. I'd heard that um, that there are some gas clouds in the universe where they've identified a chemical that we know smells of raspberries, which means that some bits of space may smell of raspberries. Oh, the Milky Way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oda space. <laughs> How pleasant. So while you and I are sitting here pondering what a black hole might smell like, folks in Einstein's day were pondering whether or not they could possibly be real. And most of them were like immediately, no. Arthur Eddington, a popular English astronomer at the time, he's a physicist, mathematician, he says this about these Schwarzschild singularities. Uh, here we go. Arthur Eddington says... There should be a law of nature to prevent a star from behaving in this absurd way. <laughs> well, that's but that's actually quite accurate, right? Like, although that particular maths chucks out this notion of a black hole, perhaps there's another law of nature or another bit of maths that we don't yet know that could like oppose the existence of it that we don't yet know about. 
Yep. So from the perspective of Einstein's time in the 30s and 40s, the question is, do they exist in nature? And that's what Einstein tried to argue, maybe not. That is correct, Avi. That is the question. But also, I gotta be real with you here, Greg. The whole time I was talking to Sarah and Avi and writing this episode, I was just kind of like, okay, we're talking about density. We're talking about curvature of space-time. But like, I just need somebody to explain to me in simple terms. What is a black hole? What is it? This is actually a really complicated question. <laughs> and the simple answer is that we're not, you know, entirely sure. <laughs> so that made me feel better. When it comes to math and physics and how we've come to think about these things, they're basically objects that become so dense that they manage to somehow collapse down to a single point. And it sounds pretty crazy, but by now we're pretty sure that these things exist. You know, they're things that form at the end of a massive star's life, for instance. And so we don't really know what's inside this event horizon. That means that what we basically know stops at this particular region. And outside that is where the astrophysics comes in. And inside that is where you get into um, esoteric theories of the universe. <laughs> Oh, I love that. So this is like taking that idea of the sheet and the bowling ball, make the bowling ball way heavier, way heavier, way denser, and it essentially warps space-time so much it pulls it down, it rips a hole in it. That's what a black hole is. And we just don't know. You're peering into that hole. You just don't know what's going on inside that swatch-told radius or what eventually becomes known as an event horizon. It's just like, I don't know. Yeah, it's sucking everything in, and we don't know where it goes. Good sound of it. Thanks. And I don't know if you caught that, Greg, but Sarah said we're pretty sure they exist. Coming back to that, like, are they real? Do they exist in nature? What is going on? And to get black holes from this impossible theory to the widely accepted field of study that they are today takes some amazing discoveries and ingenuity, Greg, that I'm going to tell you all about right after this short break. And we're back. We were just discussing, Greg, that in the mid-20th century, the world is wondering if black holes could possibly be real. And if they are real, what the heck is going on with them? What's lurking inside? We don't know. Exactly. And the math tells us that they exist. But at the time they were first proposed, and for decades later, science is not convinced. So we need to prove it. But here's the catch. Coming back to those early telescopes, right? In order to see something, we need light. Yeah, that's the way we see the world. Light or photons bounce off an object, bounce up into our eyes, fall in our retina, brain does some cool stuff, there's an image. Brain does some cool stuff, and then we can see it, right? Whether that's our retinas, or maybe a piece of film inside a camera, or the lens inside a telescope, light is the way we can see things. So if a black hole eats light, no light can bounce off of it. That makes it invisible. And if it's invisible, how do we see it? Or even find it? Usually what's happening is that a black hole is maybe eating a star or eating gas that's around it. So streams of gas are coming in. They're getting faster and faster. They collide with each other. They start to generate heat. And just like if you rub your hands together, like I'm doing now, you get heat. That's a friction. You'll get something kind of like friction that will start to heat up the gas. And when gas gets hot, it emits light. So basically the gas uh, uh, moving around the black hole is shining. Uh, because it rubs against itself and it uh, it gets hot and, and we see the radiation coming off it. So we can't see the black hole, but we can see the light of the gas heating up as it circles that black hole. So what you're saying is forming a ring to go back to Gollum's forming ring. Forming a ring. And luckily for us, Greg, 
that hot radiation, that ring of gas, makes a noise. What? This is one of my favorite parts of this story because it includes an accidental discovery, our favorite. And we gotta remember that at this point in time, we do not have any technology that would let us see that bright ring of gas visually. But in the 1930s, a man named Carl Goethe Jansky, he's an American physicist and radio engineer. He's fresh out of college, 22, gets hired by the Bell Telephone Laboratories, which also crops up surprisingly often in this podcast. Mm, sure does. I don't know if you've ever listened to a telephone call from the 1930s, Greg, but uh, it's not the clearest sounding thing in the world. I'm speaking to you, Mr. Leeper, from London, over the British Post Office telephones and the high power station at Rugby. I see, Mr. Smith, I'm speaking to you, located at New York. One wouldn't think that we were 3,000 miles apart, would one? Go ahead. I am speaking to you, Mr. Leeper, from London. One wouldn't think that we were 3,000 miles apart. I don't know, I would. It sounds pretty bad. <laughs> Because in the 1930s, when you make an overseas telephone call, right, transatlantic, we don't have undersea cables, we don't have satellites, so these calls are made via radio waves. And Jansky is hired by Bell to figure out where this static on overseas radio calls is coming from. And he makes this amazing device that I have to show you a picture of. Huh, I thought that that looked like um, the Wright brothers' first plane for a minute. It kind of, oh my Isn't god, it, it kind of does. You're right, there's some striking yeah. similarities. It, it looks a little bit like it's held together with duct tape and hope, I gotta be honest. <laughs> duct tape and hope. Okay, so it's essentially, uh, it's like a big cart. There are some wheels, it looks like it can be rotated, but it's kind of like, I guess, an antenna, but lying down. Yeah, it's a couple of huge radio antenna, basically just slapped on top of a Ford Model T wheelbase so that it can rotate as the Earth does and, you know, point up to the same part of the sky. He calls it um, Jansky's merry-go-round. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely name. Aren't humans amazing for like inventing things like that? Absolutely. And he just has like made this out of spare parts. It's a totally new device. And he figures out some really cool stuff. There's definitely a lot of interference coming from thunderstorms, for example. That's where mm. a lot of that transatlantic static is coming from. But underneath all of it, there is still always a steady background hiss at a very specific frequency. Well, that is a horrendous noise. I know, it sounds horrible, but he's got a great name for it. What's he call it? Star noise. Love it. Love it. It sounds like a great band name, right? Yeah, I, was just, I thought that straight away. <laughs> like very David Bowie of him. Jansky's pretty fascinated by this noise and where it's coming from. He consults with an astronomer and they determine that it is definitely a signal coming from the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Go Jansky. And also, this discovery was pretty huge news at the time. His unexpected discovery makes front page headlines of the New York Times. Uh, he becomes publicly known as, some people refer to him as the first earthling to eavesdrop on the universe. And this article also reassures readers, Greg, with this line that I love. I'll have you read it from the New York Times in 1933. These radio waves are not the result of some form of intelligence striving for intragalactic communication sounds suspiciously like something someone who has been talking to aliens might say. It's, yeah, it's just what the aliens would say. <laughs> but just as quickly as this discovery makes headlines, the interest in this phenomenon just like fades away. What? Poor Jansky. This is not what Bell has hired him to do. Like, he's not there to explore space. He's not an astronomer. He's there to be a, basically a radio technician. So he tells Bell that this radio interference is coming from outer space, and they're like... Ah, bummer. Okay, well, we can't do anything about it, so moving on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's nice, but do that in your own time, buddy. You've got a job. 
And so they don't really give him any resources to follow up on it. But his technical advancements opens up a huge new avenue for exploring the stars. Forget visible light telescopes, we're so limited by just visible light. If we can start looking for other non-visible signals on the electromagnetic spectrum, Greg, like x-ray, like UV, like radio, we start to see so much more and a lot farther away. Yeah, and, and hearing radio waves, hearing things from way back when, like the start of the universe, that was the story that I told you, the second episode ever of Surprising Brilliant called The Annoying Noise. If you, dear listener, want to know more about the amazing advancements we made at the birth of radio astronomy, go back and listen to that episode because it's a really good one. Talking about this kind of astronomy, Greg, can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, but essentially the way I like to think about it is that things out in space have an energy and they're emitting energy in the form of a kind of radiation, and we can detect that, right? And in terms of visible light, that's a light that we can see, but in terms of a non-visible light like radio or X-ray... We can hear it. Yeah, so some of them we can hear. It's a light we can hear. (laughs) I know, God, I love the way you put that. That's so cool. So even though Jansky does not get to explore his star noise, other astronomers in the 50s and 60s are making huge improvements in radio astronomy. And they're noticing these really weird dots in space. They kind of look like stars, but they are way too bright. Like one of the first ones that astronomers note is producing several thousand times the amount of energy of our entire galaxy. So they're way too bright. They're behaving very strangely. Scientists can't figure out what the heck they are, so they call them quasi-stellar objects, or quasars. Uh, That is where quasars come from. I know, I'd heard of them too, but I didn't know it stood for quasi-stellar object. Something star-like, but not a star. Because astronomers have realized from the math, if something's signal is this strong from this far away, it can actually be burning. So it can't be a star. And the math also tells us that this bright object has to have incredible density. So where do you think their thoughts go, Greg? Sounds black holy to me. But this is still just an educated guess, kind of a process of elimination, a, a scientific deduction, if you will. Yeah, because you can't explain a theory with another theory. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a long way down. Right, at this point, it's it can't be anything else, so it must be this. But we really need some more cold, hard evidence. And at this point, we do not have that evidence. But then, in the late 1960s, we're able to start sending rockets, baby, into space. Yeah, this must be the year of Sputnik, no? The space race, exactly. So previously, Earth's atmosphere was blocking us from hearing a bunch of stuff. But now that we can get above it, we're detecting another wavelength on the electromagnetic spectrum, and that's x-rays. We can hear a whole new world of star noise. Space telescopes. I wonder if the James Webb Space Telescope will have launched by the time this episode goes out. Ooh, I love the James Webb. Oh, it's so beautiful. So exciting. But this is 1970, Greg. We're nowhere near James Webb, unfortunately. NASA's using this new technology, though, and it has detected about 300 different objects producing x-rays. In the constellation Cygnus. A swan? Yes, exactly. I looked up how to pronounce it. Um, if we're doing it the proper Greek way, it's actually Sinus, but mm. we're not Greek, so mm. Cygnus it is. <laughs> this swan constellation is just a few thousand light years away from us. And one particular X-ray source in Cygnus is incredibly, improbably strong. And astronomers are like, oh, this is our chance. We can find out where these are coming from. There is this giant star in this part of the sky. And they're like, okay, is it the star? 
Wait, no, it's not the star. Not even a supergiant star would be capable of emitting this level of X-ray radiation. So they conclude, and I love this phrase, that the star must have a massive hidden companion. A black hole buddy. Yeah, exactly. A ghost friend. <laughs> companion. I don't know why, but that really gets to me. So they, they calculated that this massive hidden companion would be around 10 times the mass of the sun. You know. Wow. Inconsequential. But if it's this massive, then why is it hidden? Why can't we see it? The only possibility for an invisible X-ray source of this mass is once again the black hole. And within a couple of years, most of the scientific community has taken a look at this data and is accepting that this Cygnus X1, this X-ray source, is our first indirect observational evidence of a black hole ever. So do they think, to go back to what you and Avi and Sarah said earlier, that essentially it's a black hole and it's pulling the mass away from this this star and it's kind of spinning it off and firing out x-rays? Yeah, basically we think that this ghost is stealing light from its star friend and eating it, making it really hot, and that is what we can see, or rather hear. Wow. So with this acceptance of Cygnus as a black hole, we're now looking back at our quasar data and being like, you know what? I think these are black holes that are also spitting out slash sucking in light. So evidence is piling up, but also our man Jansky is about to be vindicated. Astronomers have not given up and they are trying to decode this mysterious hiss coming from the center of the Milky Way from a cluster of stars named, do you know, Greg? I do not. It's called the Sagittarius constellation. Aha. Uh -huh. So one of the uh, patterns of stars in the sky that gives name to one of the star signs. Yeah, all the star signs are actually real constellations, real clusters of stars out there in the galaxy. Astronomers are pointing their eyeballs and ears, essentially, their telescopes towards the center of the Milky Way. And it's basically like taking a finer and finer resolution picture, right? At first, our pixels are huge, and so we cannot narrow it down to one particular object. But then that image gets sharper and sharper. And in 1974, two astronomers conclude that the main source of radio waves in the Sagittarius constellation is also a black hole. And they name it Sagittarius A star. And that is the black hole in the middle of our galaxy. But also, Greg, I have to tell you this, there is such a cute reason why it has that name. So Sagittarius A star is the way you say it, but A star is like A asterisk. Mm -hmm. And that's because in physics, when you want to indicate that an atom is in an excited energy state, you denote that in like an equation or a diagram with an asterisk. Uh -huh. And the, the two astronomers who named this constellation were like, well, this is exciting. So we're going to put a star. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like it's Sagittarius with the highest grade possible. Well, in America, that would be A+, but yes. <laughs> no, I just think that's so cute. It's like a play on words. It's, I always thought it was like scientific notation, but it's like a pun, basically. So they mean it's it's Sagittarius A excited. <laughs> Sagittarius A, we're excited about it. <laughs> I love scientists. They're such nerds. Hang on, hang on, hang on. This sounds like there's another case of someone not getting the credit they deserve. Like Jansky found that noise, shouldn't he get a bit of the credit for discovering the black hole in the middle of our galaxy? Justice for Jansky! I mean, he does get often called one of the fathers of radio astronomy, so I think he's doing okay. But like, technically, that star noise was our first evidence. We just weren't able to say that it came from a black hole until after we discovered Cygnus X1. And as you mentioned earlier, Greg, this does mean that we have a black hole at the center of our galaxy. Don't panic, everybody. Don't panic. Yeah, it's a little freaky. It's around four million times as massive as our sun. It's probably not going to gobble us up, at least not any time in the next 
10 billion years or so. <laughs> so we got some time. And it turns out, we don't actually know this for sure, but it's highly likely that there is a supermassive black hole like Sagittarius A-star at the center of pretty much every galaxy. Oh, neat. Neat. I, I, my brain instantly jumps to like how snowflakes form around like a speck of dust and how in the middle of every galaxy there is a black hole. Ah, it's poetry. Oh my gosh, Greg, that is such a good way to think about it. I love that. I'm going to use that from now on because I used to think, until I did this episode, that black holes were at the center of our galaxy and they were so massive and so dense that they were sort of like holding it all together by pulling us in. But your way of thinking about it is so much more accurate. It is true that the black hole is kind of holding the very center of the galaxy together in some sense, or it's pulling a lot of things in. But the effect that the black hole has isn't that strong for very long. So uh, really the very extreme effects that come from this regime where the black hole is actually warping space-time and doing stuff only affects about maybe like 10 times its size for the really extreme effects. And for an object that's, you know, four million times as massive as our own sun, that is not inconsequential. But what it means is that its gravity is only really affecting the stuff in its immediate vicinity. And then everything else around that is attracted to the stuff that's attracted to the immediate vicinity of the black hole, like your snowflake analogy, building out like a crystal. Sweet, that's a surprise. I love that. And this is where it really starts to blow my mind, Greg, because it turns out that instead of the black hole being the reason that we're all circling like this central drain that we're being sucked into, it might actually be the opposite, that maybe the black hole spat us out. Black holes can basically eject like these crazy jets of magnetized fluid that can be billions of times bigger than the black hole that launches them. So that basically will take it outside the entire galaxy that the black hole is in the center of, and it can actually alter the history of its galaxy and other galaxies nearby. That becomes really important for understanding how, you know, galaxies like our own formed and galaxies are made up of star systems that are made out of planets. And so this can also have an effect on, on how, you know, life was formed or other types of life forms. Well, so the black hole, Sagittarius A star, is, is like responsible for our birth but also eventually it's going to be responsible for our death. Yeah, they are essential to our understanding of not only our galaxy, but the universe. And at this point, right after Sag A star is named, we still don't have any direct evidence that they even exist. So I'm going to tell you all about how and when, or is it if we get that direct evidence of the existence of black holes right after this break. And we're back, Greg. We have just been discussing the ways in which black holes are not just a weird and exciting theoretical anomaly, but also may shape our understanding of the very universe that we live in. Mm -hmm. And to get us all the way to today, where we have this wide acceptance of black holes as fact, we have to go back to our man Einstein. That's the other regime where Einstein's theory is crucial uh, to figure out how the universe is uh, expanding since the Big Bang. And we now know that uh, almost every galaxy has such a supermassive black hole at its center, including galaxies at very early cosmic times. We see those massive black holes already in existence when the universe was just about 5% of its present age. 
What Avi's talking about here is a phenomenon that is explained by Einstein's theory of special relativity. Light travels at a certain speed, right? Light speed. We know this is a constant, which means that to reach us here on Earth from a certain distance away, that takes time. So the light that we are seeing here on Earth, depending on how far away it is, is old light. It's from the past. We're seeing the past. I know it's bonkers. I mean, so it's the idea that if the sun suddenly blinked out of existence, we wouldn't know for eight minutes because it takes eight minutes for the light to get to us from the sun. So things that are way further away, we are seeing them how they were not just minutes ago, but hours years ago, you know, and that idea is you're essentially looking back in time when you see the universe around us. And as Avi just mentioned, we are able now to see things that are far enough back in time that we're seeing what the universe was like when it was 5% old. We see, in fact, black holes more massive than Sagittarius A star that weigh about a billion times the mass of the sun already in existence when the universe was 5% of the age today. So in the infant universe, they somehow managed to grow very rapidly. And that's one of the puzzles we don't fully understand. It's as if you go to the delivery room and uh, you find the babies that are giant, you know, like these are black holes that weigh a lot. And how did they grow to be so big in the delivery room of the early universe? You know, that's a, an interesting question. <laughs> that's a weird idea. It's a really weird image. But essentially what he's trying to get across is that we see supermassive black holes at the beginning of the universe because of this thing where we can see back in time. So those supermassive black holes that we are seeing uh, as infants now are no longer infants, they're grown-ups. And we just don't know what they're like as grown-ups because we can only see them as little babies. Yes, yes. Big babies. And this to me, this to me, that that's time travel, right? Like we're traveling back in time when we look at something that's really far away. Time travel is real. For sure. Anyone else's head hurting yet? This is uh, this is just the beginning, Greg. Because I, Einstein and Schwarzschild, when they're polishing up their field equations, they've come upon a problem. Yes, the theoretical existence of the black holes, right? But it has also brought them back to a theory that's been bouncing around in the physics world in various iterations since as early as the 1890s. You can think of gravitational waves as uh, a space-time storm uh, created when two black holes collide because they perturb uh, space and time uh, by a large amount in their vicinity. So it's just like a storm. And then the waves propagate out um, and become very weak by the time they reach us. But if you examine the characteristics of those waves, you can infer what produced them. And to help us wrap our heads around this idea, Greg, I want you to picture that you and I are swimming in the ocean. Where are we? Uh, I'm going to say off the coast of California. Ooh, my home state. Let's say we're in Malibu in July and we're having a lovely time. We're swimming. Suddenly, two boats far away from us crash into each other. Uh-oh. Nobody's on board. Everyone's fine. But what are we going to feel swimming in that water? We are going to experience the waves when they eventually reach us. Yes, but instead of boats on the ocean, out in space, what's crashing together is hugely massive astrophysical bodies like black holes. They're just 
out there bonking into each other and other stuff. And Einstein's field equations, as solved by Schwarzschild, predict that when this happens, it will create waves in space-time, just like those two boats do on the ocean when they crash together. But like Avi said, if we wanted to measure those waves, they are so minuscule by the time they get to Earth, we would need to be interferometers if we wanted to be able to detect and to measure those gravitational waves from the boats, Greg, or rather, the black holes. Gosh, Marin, I've always wanted to be an interferometer. Oh, my God, you too? I haven't, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So in the decades since Einstein and Schwarzschild theorized that black holes could possibly exist, and then in those decades where we have found really interesting indirect evidence for the fact that they are real, people are starting to think, okay, gravitational waves are probably happening, but it's going to be way too hard to detect them. We can't do it. Yeah, I mean, it's that same pattern again, isn't it? Like, we people have theorized a thing, gravitational waves, but, whoa, are they complex and tricky and not possible to measure easily. So we're going to go for, nah, I don't know if we can prove they can exist, everyone, until you have the tools to do so. And Sarah has a great story that illustrates this. So this was a prediction that was out there for a long time, and people started to talk about actually making observations of this, but the the amount of precision you needed was like crazy. And I remember when I was a student, actually, um, I was at MIT where Ray Weiss, he was actually my, my, my teacher for a class and he was working on this stuff. And we all thought he was kind of nuts, you know, because it just seemed like there's no way this is gonna work, right? And, you know, of course he proved everybody wrong. <laughs> That's because Greg, Ray Weiss goes on to win the Nobel Prize in 2017, along with the rest of his team. <laughs> That's mega cool. And Sarah was being lectured by Ray. Yes, exactly. Wow. And that nuts experiment that Sarah mentions is LIGO, which stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And how does LIGO like measure C gravitational waves? I'm going to simplify this massively. But essentially what's happening is we're shooting two lasers. They're crossing each other at a 90 degree angle, and those lasers are doing a wiggly, 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 wiggly. Or in more scientific terms, a certain wavelength. Ha! Go science. When they cross each other, they're creating interference in each other's wavelengths, and we can measure that interference pattern. Now, if anything jostles the two laser beams, we're gonna be able to measure tiny, tiny shifts in that interference pattern. And when I say tiny, Greg, I mean a distance that's like one ten thousandth the width of a proton. That's insanely accurate. And what's what's crazy about this, Greg, is that there are two of these facilities. So there's one of that apparatus in a state called Louisiana, and there's a Uh whole separate one exactly like it in a state called Washington. And I don't know how good your U.S. geography is, but they're basically on opposite sides of a very large country. (laughs) Sensible, yeah, right. So they kind of like can check each other's work. Yeah, exactly. To make sure that a disturbance that one detects is also detected by the other one in the same way to make sure that one isn't just getting jostled by something nearby. I've just looked up LIGO on Twitter and they've said, we have exciting news. We've just had more detections, which takes our total number of gravitational wave events to 90. 
Yeah, my dude, they have done such incredible work since they started even officially looking for gravitational waves in 2014, so like not that long ago. I mean, it took like a couple decades to get the machine up and running and make sure that it was good, but they haven't really been looking for that long. And the very first one, this groundbreaking discovery of a gravitational wave, sounds like this. Whoa, play that again. That is the sound of the ripple in space-time made by the collision of two black holes. Did you hear that, like, plop in the middle? How bonkers that a ripple in space-time has, like, a water drop sound in it. I never, I never thought I'd hear a gravitational wave. That is amazing. Now, it has been pitch shifted up in frequency so that we can hear it a little more easily. But one of the reasons this kind of anticlimactic chirp was such a big deal is because most astrophysicists took it to be the first actual proof that we have that Einstein's theory of gravity is right, that the math that he and Schwarzschild worked out that so many people thought was so weird for so long is correct. And they could tell from the measurements of that gravitational wave that it was the result of the collision of two black holes. But since then, as their Twitter itself says, they've gone on to detect gravitational waves from two neutron stars colliding, or a neutron star banging into a black hole, or even just two objects circling each other, not even crashing together. So we can tell from those measurements what the objects are. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. How can you tell from like seeing a gravitational wave what it was that created it? I don't know. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> Maths. Something about the way that they look. <laughs> but clearly they can make that deduction mathematically from, from the type of wave they're seeing uh, as to what created it. But my question for you here, Greg, is a little more philosophical. Because... I found myself wondering, does this detection of a gravitational wave, so like the ripple of the collision of a black hole, count as seeing a black hole? Hmm. I guess it's like seeing a shadow and going, what created that shadow? And you can work it out with maths, with science, to say this was the thing that created that shadow, but you never get eyes on the actual thing itself. Exactly! And this is where my brain starts to spiral into like a mega rabbit hole. But also, this is a rabbit hole that many philosophers have uh, trodden down in the past, where it's like, if you, mm. if you even take that a step further, back to our photons bouncing out off of objects and coming back into our eyeballs, that's like, yes, that is our version of seeing, but it's still just an imprint. So what is the thing? There is there is like a fundamental truth of existence or being that we probably will never be able to see because of the limited way that we perceive the world. Yeah, I mean, but come on, if you want to get really philosophical, you know, I, in its basic sense, I don't know if the red that you see is the same as the red I see, right? Exactly. Uh, or the way that you hear a sound is the way I hear a sound. Do any of us ever see reality? I think the answer is probably no. And this brings us back to the topic at hand, Greg, out of our rabbit hole and back to black holes, because it begs the question, even with all of these observations, they are indirect. So are black holes real? That's why, of course, there's a push towards things like gravitational waves, but also to things like the Event Horizon Telescope. Sarah is one of the scientists who works on the EHT, the Event Horizon Telescope, which is what helped us take the first picture of a black hole. 
and they just showed a black piece of card and went, there you go, got it. Um, no, no, because obviously you can't see the actual black hole. But th- what, what, were they taking a picture of the ring? Was that what I remember the photo was of? The ring, bud. Exactly. We're taking a picture of that super hot, bright gas around the black hole. And to see this visually, like with our eyeballs, not detected via radio wave or x-ray signal, we need a pretty special telescope. So a telescope can only see things as good as its size, basically. So, you know, similar to like a camera lens, right? Like the bigger your lens, the better you're going to be able to take big, you know, fine pictures, right? And so that's why um, telescopes tend to be bigger equals better. Um, The problem is when you think about the size on the sky, that even this massive black hole, like even though it's, you know, billions of times the mass of our sun, because it's so far away, it's like the equivalent of looking for an apple on the moon or reading a newspaper from the east coast of the US to Europe. You know, I mean, you can calculate how big your telescope would need to be to get to that kind of precision. And it more or less comes out, well, it depends on the size of your black hole, but it turns out that you need a telescope that's the size of the Earth. That is bonkers. This brings back memories of how they did it. Didn't they somehow manage to use the whole breadth and height of the Earth as a camera, yes, so they could see something the size of the black hole. When Sarah said that, you you need a telescope the size of Earth, I was like, well, well, we can't do that. And then she was like, and then we did. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) They essentially use telescopes in all different countries all over the world, in South America, Central America, North America, Europe, Africa, like everywhere. And you use this array of smaller telescopes around the world to effectively map out a virtual telescope. They're all taking measurements at the same time of the same thing, and you merge those measurements together using crazy math and amazing amounts of supercomputing so that you get one cohesive picture. Now, it's not perfect because you're essentially kind of like mapping incomplete pictures on top of each other. So it's, uh, well, you know, I'll just show you the photo. Here it is. Oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, I remember seeing this in the in the newspaper or whatever, like, and just being like, wow. "It's an iconic image." So, you know, if you just saw this, you'd be like, oh, "Okay, yeah, it's a ring of light." It's a it's like, a glowing okay. donut. It's a glowing donut. It's dark in the middle, and it's fuzzy. You know, and, and is it fuzzy because it's put together from all those aspects of the Earth-sized camera? Exactly, Sarah. I love this. She calls it fluffy astrophysics <laughs> because there are some errors, you know, that have to be corrected mathematically. So it is our first image. It's a beautiful image, but you know, we can always make it sharper, and that is exactly what we're about to do, Greg. Because this picture is of a black hole called M87. It's the black hole at the center of a neighboring galaxy. And you might be wondering, Greg, like I was, why didn't we take a picture of our own black hole at the center of our own galaxy? Hey, Marin, why didn't we take a picture of our own black hole at the center of our own galaxy? (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you asked, Greg, because the answer is (laughs) hilarious. I I didn't really realize this, but the amount of data generated by these telescopes is gigantic enormous and it has to be stored on physical disks and there are like crates and crates and crates of these disks like this amount of data cannot be transferred digitally and of course these telescopes are all over the world from the point of view on earth the star falls more in the southern part of the sky and so we really needed the data from a telescope that was in the south pole 
called the South Pole Telescope, originally enough. Astronomers always have these names like Big Telescope, Very Large Telescope, <laughs> South Pole Telescope. Anyway, these data were taken in spring, but that was winter in the South Pole. So we had to wait till I think it was like October, November until that crate of disk could actually be physically sent from the South Pole. Wow. You just think now, don't you? Oh, just I'll send it via WeTransfer. It's all good. Nope, not for, not, that not one. for a black hole, you <laughs> will not. So essentially, even though our black hole is closer and also larger, we couldn't do that picture first because of the ice caps. Is there a name to like take a picture of Sagittarius A star in the future when when we Yeah, can? yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing it right now. I wonder if it'll look much different to the to this one that I'm looking at now. Dude, I really hope we find out because I have the same question. Mm. It's gonna be so cool. So now we can see it rather than hear it or like f- measure its effects through the gravitational waves. Like what more does that tell us about the black hole? You know, gravitational waves have such precision that they were really like an extremely clear test of of Einstein's theory of of general relativity, but again, for a very different scale. Sarah had mentioned small versus supermassive black holes a couple of times during our interview. And I was like, are we talking like the size of a dinner plate or like what, what, what is a small black hole? She reassured me. She's like, no, they're like when we say small black hole, we mean like a couple times more massive than our sun as opposed to a supermassive black hole, which is like maybe a couple million times larger than our sun. And like they come in different sizes, they kind of come in different flavors too, where some of them aren't active. They're not eating light. So we wouldn't be able to see them with the EHT anyway. They would have no ring. So LIGO and observing gravitational waves helps us see those black holes that are more invisible than others, whereas the EHT can see supermassive black holes that are eating light. And we'll never be able to look at the um, direct light signature of a horizon with these small ones, like we can do for supermassive black holes. But also, you know, the details of the astrophysics, the, the roots of these crazy huge jets that alter galaxies and, uh, you know, accelerate particles, that's something that we can only really see in detail also with the light signatures around this supermassive black hole with the Event Horizon Telescope. So from a theory that nobody thought could possibly be real to taking an actual picture of one, this is as far as we've gotten when it comes to observing black holes. And to be fair, we've come quite far. I mean, LIGO and the EHT are just the latest in a long history of innovation and accidents and questions that have cropped up when trying to look at something that is unlookable. But there's still so much we don't know. Like some astronomers think that black holes could be making up dark matter? The weird stuff that we know is there, but we don't really know exactly what it is, but it makes up a huge amount of the mass of the universe. Yeah, Sarah was telling me that all of the matter that we can like see and touch and detect is just like 5% of the universe. And the rest is dark matter and dark energy, and we do not know what it is. There's so much we don't know. Exactly. Like, do they violate the laws we think are true? Like, matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Like, the stuff that goes into a black hole, does it really disappear? Does it show up somewhere else? We don't know, Greg. Wormholes. We haven't talked about wormholes. We started with Doctor Who. That, I mean, the the whole title sequence of Doctor Who is essentially going into a wormhole, right? And that could that could come, some people say it comes from the centre of a black hole. Yeah, man. 
And the and the the thing is, we just there's still so much to explore. And if there's anything that we see as a pattern in this episode, it's that we have this outlandish idea, this crazy question that most people are saying, you know what, this is too weird and too hard. We're not gonna touch this. But then some brave soul comes along and is just curious enough to get creative and figure out how to probe that question. That's just like Sarah in the lecture hall with Ray Vice talking at him saying, I'm going to solve this thing. And them going, nah, come on, it's way too bonkers. And you know what? They did it. They freaking did it. And something that both Sarah and Avi brought up, and this comes back to one of the more outlandish theories that surround black holes, but I think we should talk about it, is that there are maybe two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, right? Just a few, just a few. Just a couple, a handful. We have said, right, on this podcast, Greg, that there's probably a black hole at the center of most galaxies, if not all. Mm -hmm. We know that these black holes are ejecting material that is shaping the galaxies around them. LIGO has now observed that from our perspective, a black hole is colliding with another black hole or another massive astrophysical object once every couple of minutes. And we know that when they do this, they produce these amazing heavy elements that were required at the very beginning of our universe. So with all of this knowledge, why are we still, most of us, totally convinced that we are the only intelligent life in the universe. And Avi has a really interesting perspective on this. Okay, nature tells you no, the Earth-Sun system is very common. So what do the scientists say? They say, okay, the Earth-Sun system is common, but we are really intelligent, you know, because we discovered the laws of physics, we have free will, therefore we are superior to matter. We can feel that we are, you know, more important than matter in the universe. The human ego is the source of all evil. So the ego of humans prevents us from making scientific progress. Wow. We're in our own way, man. Yeah. Although the human ego is also what drives us. You know, it's also responsible for a lot of the kind of positive um, development and thought that humans have come up with. Um, but I can I can see his point. And Avi is so cool. He's like right at the forefront of this work, really advocating for that perspective of not letting the haters hate, essentially, and being like, let yourself be curious, let yourself be enthralled by all of the possibilities of the universe, because only when we consider all of them are we then going to be capable of finding what's out there. What I would like to emphasize is that... Um, Science is work in progress and there is a lot of room for young people to contribute and resolve some of the unsolved puzzles. Um, and uh, don't believe the adults in the room that pretend that they know much more than they actually know. I don't care much about people trying to impress each other. That's irrelevant. Let's figure out the world and there are lots of things we don't understand. The knowledge we have is just an island in an ocean of ignorance. And that offers a lot of opportunities for young people to expand this island. All this gets me really excited about what's going to come next, because there are theories that that science and maths, you know, burps out. And we don't know whether those things are, are going to be in existence or not, because we don't have the tools yet yet being the super exciting operative word. And like Avi is, I'm really hopeful that 
this openness and this curiosity will let us delve past these realms of the impossible or the unseeable to keep discovering amazing new world-changing things about phenomena like black holes. Right, to get a sense of our own puny scale, <laughs> but then in the same sense, our own incredible intellect. But as we've also just been reflecting, not to like put ourselves on a pedestal and put current knowledge on a pedestal. Gives you some perspective, Greg. That's for freaking sure. It makes me feel small, but in a good way. I want to give a huge thank you to both Sarah and Avi for sharing their amazing expertise and their stories for this episode. You can find out more about them and their work in the show notes of this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get yours. Um, it always means a lot to see your thoughts and read your comments. Uh, and please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think might enjoy this episode or any of the dozens of stories from science history that we've told so far. If you have a story from science history that you would like us to tell in an upcoming episode, a discovery, an invention, you'd like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on social, that there is Marin Hunsberger. She goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Instagram and Twitter. And my lovely co-host is Greg Foote, who is at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker, and this episode was written by me, Marin Hunsberger. Our wonderful producers and co-writers were Katarina Kropshofer and Sylvia Lazares. This episode was edited by Eric Jackowitz. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth and Alexis Joy, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. And finally, some of the research you heard about today was supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. You can learn more at templeton.org. We'll chat to you next time. See ya.